to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. That hymn that we just sang is so scriptural. It said, don't give me prophetic ecstasies. Don't rend this vessel of clay. And there are so many that want the ecstasies and the rending of the vessel of clay, the overriding of the natural in some visible manifestation of the Spirit. Oh, brethren, we want the Spirit in its fruit. I want to speak to you this morning about the fruit of the Spirit. I want your children to be able to understand. I want you to be reminded of a verse that we've memorized a few weeks ago of the 11 aspects of the fruit of the Spirit contained in James 5 and Ephesians 5 that ought to be evident in our lives. I want to start in Romans chapter 8, however, because here we have a sober warning that the Spirit of God ought to be evident in our lives by the character of our lives. I want to read to you the first nine verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. May the Lord bless the preaching and the reading of his precious word. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We love the song, number 455 in our hymnals, And Can It Be, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. And we sing that fifth verse, No condemnation now I dread. However, the only, reason, the only way that we can have full assurance that there is no condemnation waiting for us is to fulfill the last part of verse 1 and 5 who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The evidence that our condemnation has been put away by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is described for us in verses 2 through 5, the evidence of it is we walk after the Spirit. Now, to walk after the Spirit is to live the kind of a life that evidences the Spirit of God within you and guiding you. I don't want anything to be complicated. It's not complicated. Who walk not after the flesh. If you walk after the flesh, then you are living like everyone else lives. You are choosing your belly and satisfying it instead of the Spirit and satisfying Him. When you walk after the Spirit, it means to walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit and walking after the Spirit are the same thing. 
You are following the leading and the direction of the Spirit of God. And so your life shows the character of God because God within you is being shown outside of you by your actions, your words, and your thoughts. It's all included here. For, because if we're carnally minded, it's an evidence of death. And the only ones that care about the flesh are those that are after the flesh. They're born of flesh, and that's all. If we're born of the Spirit, we're going to show the Spirit of God. We're going to show the character of God. Now let's come to that passage that we know deals with this subject, and that's Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. God has elected saints for the manifestation of His glory. And He has justified them by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And He regenerates us by giving us a new nature. The nature we have from birth, our first birth, is a nature that just wants to satisfy the flesh. The lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's all that you have in you by nature. There is no goodness in you. The Bible teaches us that plainly. There is no goodness in any man. I don't care what's taught in modern psychology classes. There's no goodness there. It's all corrupt. It's all defiled. It's profane. And that nature within us simply wants to satisfy our selfish interests. And it's possible for a child of God for a short period of time to walk after that flesh. But God is going to chasten a child of God back toward walking in the Spirit, or take that child of God out of this world. He wants to leave in this world a people zealous of good works Amen. that manifest His glory in this wicked place. And we should be showing the character of God. When we are born again, we have a new nature put within us, a nature created in righteousness and true holiness. Amen. There is a nature that wants to do what is right knows what is right. It doesn't even need instruction because it has perfect knowledge from God Himself. But we are left while we're in this world with a mind that is constantly being torn by two seats of affection. One, our old nature, only loves sin. Right. Hates God. Our new nature hates sin and loves God. Right. And so we're in a state of conflict inside. And that conflict, the closer you're walking with the Lord and the more submissive you are to His Word and to His leading, you know it's a horrible conflict and you hate it. Right. And that's why sometimes we enjoy singing that song, How Sweet to Die, because we'll get out of this body and we won't have that conflict. Amen. So there's a war going on within us. I cannot divide into all the compartments the new man the old man, the flesh, the spirit, the soul, the spirit, the heart, the mind, and the body. I can just give you some vague ideas. But it's the way the Bible has left it, and it's, it's good enough for us because it's what God wants us to understand. Right. You have a choice between walking after that spirit, chul new man, and you have a choice to walk after the old man. Or to put off the old man and his works, were to put on the new man that's created in righteousness and true holiness. There's a conflict. We can choose to walk after the Spirit. You can pray for that Spirit, and the Spirit will help you walk after Him to show the character of God in your life. 
And the more you do it, the stronger you'll get. The more you do it, the stronger you'll hate sin. The more you do it, the more sensitive you'll be to sin. The more you do it, the stronger your conscience gets in excusing you when you do right and accusing you when you do wrong. But if you just come in here and sit and warm a chair and sing and go home, you'll default to your flesh. Because it's a choice to walk after the Spirit. The Spirit is there to give us the power. We have a new nature. But we are not fatalists. We are not fatalists that there will be an overwhelming power of the Spirit always making us do what is right. We believe in the combination of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility the same way Paul did. I am what I am by the grace of God. But the grace of God that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. That's where I leave it. To go beyond that is to go beyond Scripture. I absolutely believe that there is not an event that occurs in this universe that is not under the complete and absolute government control and direction and use of God. It all serves His perfect and holy will of accomplishing His perfect and holy designs in the universe. Every act, sin or good. The Bible tells us that repeatedly. An example is Psalm 76 and verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. There is man sinning, but his sinning works the praise of God. And the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. God controls us like puppets in the sense that there is no sin that is not used by God to further his ends of praising himself in the universe. The devil was no surprise to God that he sinned and was cast down from heaven. It was no disappointment to the Most High that his highest created being rebelled against him. He's just using that being for his own honor and glory. And every act of wickedness in the part of Satan is to the praise of God. That's the sovereignty of God. However, There is a responsibility for us to obey the revealed will of God. And not only has He given us a revealed will that we have to obey and that we should obey, He has given us a nature with power and love that wants to obey it. And that's in the new man. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning. You would never find pleasure in reading. You'd never even try to pray. I know sometimes when you get down to pray and you're tempted with a distracted mind, you wonder if you're a child of God, because if you were really a child of God and a true saint, your mind would never be distracted. Amen. That is not the, pri- the right way of reasoning. When you're down there and it's happening, you should confess what we just read in Romans chapter 8, and what we're going to read here is that we have a conflict in us. Right. The evidence that you're not a child of God is you don't get down to pray. Or you don't get down very often. Or you get down to pray and then you don't keep any of his commandments. It's easy to pray sometimes because prayer may not take a sacrifice. But keeping his commandments usually takes a sacrifice in our lives. I just went and chased that little excursion into the land of God's sovereignty to try to remind you of what the Bible teaches us. We're going to see that we have a new man, but the new man does not overpower us. We still have our soul, and our soul chooses 
whether we're going to walk after the flesh or we're going to walk after the spirit. The more we walk after the spirit, the stronger that spirit is. We can grieve and quench the spirit. Now, does that sound like an overwhelming sovereign power to you if we can quench and grieve it? No, because in the dispensation of the Spirit of God to us, it is not given to us to override us at all times. It is given to assist us. It's called the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is a ministry of assistance in obeying God. Let's read a few verses here in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25. Lord, please give us understanding of all these sentences of your precious word. Galatians 5.16, This I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's making a choice. If you're going to walk after the Spirit or in the Spirit, you'll not keep the lust of the flesh. And here's the explanation. For they're opposites. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, if you take that verse without understanding an ellipsis there, that means that we are fatalistically designed to never keeping one of God's commandments. Do you see that? Where that's in, If you just take that verse at its face value without having a sense applied to it, it says ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, does that mean you can never do anything that you would? It just means that you're never going to do everything all the time without a conflict. That's putting the sense on those words. So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Ye cannot do them all the time in the way that you wish you could or should or would. There's going to be a conflict always because of that flesh. And when we read a verse like this, it can be comforting to our souls because we know how difficult it is to always manifest the character of God, even though we want to because we still have the flesh within us. But if ye be led of the Spirit, that is the man who chooses to walk in the Spirit's leading, after the Spirit's leading, ye are not under the law. We are delivered from the law, which is do and live. We are now under a different law, live and do. It's the opposite. We're not under a do and live. We're under a live and do. He's given us the life. Now let's do it. Let's live according to it. We've got it. We have the power. He's given it to us. He crushed, the, he crushed Israel with the old covenant. It was do and live. And how many lived because of their doing? None. But how many live under the new covenant? All. But not all do, but they should. And we have the power to do. Now here's... The works of the flesh. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. This is the manifestation of the flesh. How do we know what's flesh? How do we know a person that's in the flesh? How do I know when I'm in the flesh? This is how you know. This is the evidence. This is the fruit. We can actually say in Galatians 5.19, now the fruit of the flesh. Because what it is, it's the evidence of the flesh. But it's called works here. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Anything like that list of sins is the flesh. Of the which I tell you before, as I have 
also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are not God's people. But the fruit of the Spirit, or this is the evidence or manifestation of the presence of God in a life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You can have as much of these as you want. It's just like God told Adam and Eve in the garden. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. There is no law against these things. Abound in this list of the fruit of the Spirit. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Those that are truly Christ have killed the list that's in verses 19 through 21 in order that they might bear the list that's in verses 22 and 23. And this, this is the overwhelming message of the New Testament. To walk in the character of God and to bring forth godliness in our lives. Last night exhorting our graduates, godliness with contentment is great gain. The the measure of success and the rule for success and the route to success begins with godliness. And godliness is showing the character of God from the inside out. Because if you're a child of God, God is in you. And you have the power and the desire to live this life. Withered fruit and no fruit is a sign of a reprobate. According to the book of Jude, to whom is reserved the midst of the blackness of darkness forever. What is fruit? I don't want you to be confused by the word fruit. When we say the fruit of the Spirit, we mean the evidence of the character of a thing. The word fruit is used in the Bible when the Pharisees came out to gaze at John's baptism. John said, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Show me some evidence of repentance. Jesus said of false prophets by their Fruits ye shall know them by the evidence of their ministry, by the effect, by the product. And so when we see the words, the fruit of the Spirit, what we understand by that is what shows or proves the presence of the Spirit of God. Don't get confused with the simple little word. It means the evidence of God in your life. And if you don't have the evidence of God in your life by walking after the Spirit, then there's no evidence that you have been delivered from that condemnation that is to come, according to Romans 8 that we began with. The presence of the Spirit of God in a life. We sang it in the song before I began here this morning on this subject. It is not known by gifts or by feelings. The presence of the Spirit of God in a life is not known by gifts or feelings. My brethren, Judas Iscariot had more gifts of the Spirit of God than Benny Hinn, Catherine Kuhlman, and all the rest of the modern charismatics and faith healers. Judas Iscariot. It's no evidence that a person's a child of God and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within them. That is not how we measure the Spirit of God. That's why I love that hymn we sang that said, I'm not looking for prophetic ecstasies. I'm looking for the dimness of my soul to be taken away and a passion restored that loves Christ. That's what I'm looking for because that is the fruit of the Spirit. What about feelings? Amnon had more feelings than you've ever had from any two of your high infatuations in life. 
Feelings are not the measure of the Spirit of God. That man had such feelings, they were so great he fell sick because of them. But it's not the evidence of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will give you plenty of bowels of compassion for the Lord and for the Spirit and for others. But we never go after the feelings first. The feelings follow submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God and walking in His way. Obedience precedes feelings. You already have a feeling or you wouldn't be here this morning. And if you're here without any at all, then pray tell, what are you here for? Because the presence of a new man includes a desire toward the Lord. There's affections within the new man for righteousness. He loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. So there's affection there. But as you obey, those affections become stronger. But we do not measure the presence of the Spirit of God by feelings. We measure the presence of the Spirit of God by fruit because fruit shows what kind of a tree the fruit is hanging from. Now, I've told you this already recently, but I want to remind you, two horrible statements, hilarious statements, have been made to me in recent weeks by visitors who've attended our assembly. One visitor said, when I visited your assembly, I couldn't feel any spirit. Your church is dead. A couple weeks after that, we had a visitor here who, when I went up to greet him after the service, said, wow, I could feel the Spirit this morning. You gave me Holy Ghost goosebumps. Now, there's two people, two ignorant people, measuring the Spirit of God by feelings. One wasn't satisfied with enough jumping around and enough music to throb his flesh to get the feelings of the Spirit. Now, the other, for some reason just really got turned on by whatever noise he heard that morning. Because no child of God talks that way. That's the ignorance of our generation. And you may think me a little harsh and cruel and critical to talk that way about visitors, but brethren, we live in an evil day where a bill of goods is being sold, people, that the Spirit of God is measured by feelings. Because in the churches where the Spirit of God left long ago, they've replaced it with a bunch of noise. Right. And I've explained to you before the, ma- the, the psychology of crowds that if you get enough people together that are doing the same thing and you make enough noise, they'll all feel a spirit. The Germans felt a spirit in the 1930s. That spirit motivated them to do some great things. It wasn't the spirit of God. Right. The coal walkers of the Aborigines, they have a spirit. And they get all excited and they make a lot of noise, but it's not the Spirit of God. We do not measure the Spirit of God by gifts or by feelings. We measure it by fruit, and fruit is simply a word to describe evidence or proof that God's presence is in a life. Because God's character should be shining through those that are His children. Both of those individuals that I just described wouldn't know the Spirit of God if He came up and introduced Himself to them. Because they're looking for the wrong thing. We want the character of God. Amen. Brethren, it's too easy to say you have the fruit of the Spirit. So we've got to measure it by what you do toward others, primarily. It's too easy to say, I do love. What? You don't have to tell us that you love. If you love, it will be evident, and it will be evident God's way and by God's measurement. The fruit of the Spirit cannot be taught in a Dale Carnegie course. 
Now, I say those words that cannot be taught in a Dale Carnegie course because there is no amount of self-discipline by which you can bring to bear the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of God in a life. You can't keep it up, and it's all false, and it's fake, and anyone with the Spirit of God can see through it, and God certainly sees through it. It can't be trained. It's not a temperamental gift. Don't ever talk to me about how they're temperamentally loving. No one is temperamentally 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. No one. By nature, we are hateful and hating one another. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to turn to Isaiah 30, and I I want to show you what it means to walk in the Spirit, and then we're going to race through the 11 aspects of the fruit of the Spirit and just be reminded of what they are. Uh, But I hope this passage is very meaningful to you this morning. Isaiah chapter 30. Walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Those are instructions for us. So we have a choice to make. You've got two voices inside you. One is tempting you and seducing you and arguing with you to get you to sin. Another is the Spirit of God through your new man trying to get you to walk in the way of righteousness, speaking to you about the way of righteousness. You can quench and grieve that spirit. It is not an overwhelming spirit that will force you to do right. But you can choose that spirit, and it's a great blessing, and and the spirit gets stronger and will enable you. And brethren, here's what happens. I can preach this message. I can get convicted about it, studying and preaching it. You can get convicted about it, hearing it. But when we walk out of these doors, the whole world lines up on one side of those two natures and strikes up its band and plays an accompaniment only for one of our natures, the flesh. And if you do not go to the Word of God, and if you do not go to prayer, and if you do not go to godly music, the world wins. Isaiah chapter 30 is a promise of spiritual prosperity coming to God's people after God's severe judgment. I want to read to you two verses describing the blessing that's coming. The blessing begins in verse 18 after horrible... Ju- oh, the judgment is horrible in verses 8 through 17. But I want to come to verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction... Though your circumstances may not be ideal, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore. But thine eyes shall see thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way. Walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand, and when ye turn to the left. This is the blessing of the Spirit of God. Spiritual prosperity is described here by having teachers in front of you. God took away the teachers from Israel numerous times. Go read about Samuel. In Samuel's day, there hadn't been a prophet in a good while. And God takes away teachers. But when God grants spiritual prosperity, there are teachers before your eyes that you can look at and be thankful God has sent a man to teach me his word. And so you can hear instruction from the front. And you'll see your teachers, and they won't be removed and hid away in a corner like God sometimes hid his prophets away from the mainstream of Israel. And while you're looking at that teacher and hearing his words and his instruction, 
there's going to be a voice behind you that says, this is the way. Walk ye in it. And when will you hear that help? When you're being tempted or in your ignorance, you're turning to the left hand or the right hand. That is a fantastic comfort. Now, we read this last Sunday in a different way. We read it in Philippians chapter 3, which says, And if ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Do you hear this right here? This is a blessing of God. You're looking at your teacher, and behind you is further assistance. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Whenever you start to veer off to the left or the right, if you have begged for the presence of the Spirit of God, are submissive to the Spirit of God, are seeking to mortify the lusts of the flesh, you will have a voice keeping you in the way of righteousness. You quench that voice, and it's very quiet. You obey that voice and pray for that voice and feed that voice by begging God for a manifestation of the Spirit in your life like the song we just sang. That voice can be quite strong and keep you in the way of righteousness. This is spiritual prosperity. Come back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. With that blessing, let us look very quickly. We are not going to study. Here's what happens when I study the fruit of the Spirit. It is, the, it is the constant nightmare of being your pastor. And it's not your fault. It's not the Lord's fault. I look at the fruit of the Spirit and I say, should I preach one sermon and cover them all? Should I preach one sermon for each one, which would be 11 sermons? Or should I preach 11 sermons on love? Because once you get into love, guess what the whole New Testament is teaching as the commandment from the beginning and the highest measure of a child of God is love. And can 11 sermons be preached on love? Amen. Easily. You say, well, if you're going to just preach one sermon, you've already... No, listen, if you do not understand what it actually means, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of God inside you. The The fruit off a tree indicates the nature of that tree. The actions of your life and the words from your lips and the thoughts in your head are the evidence of the character of God because God is within you. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. And right. this, these are the things that we ought to have in our lives visible. And it's a manifestation. It's an evidence that we're walking after the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What comes first? Love. And throughout the New Testament, love is first. Now by faith, hope, charity, these three. And faith is going to be in this list. But the greatest of these is charity. Love is the hardest measure. It is the most contrary thing to our nature. It requires the most grace. And it's the most emphasized in the New Testament. A rich man came to Jesus one time and said, "What is?" he wanted to test Jesus. What is the great commandment? Jesus asked, And the commandment was, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You've answered correctly. All the law and the prophets are obeyed by keeping those two commandments, love. But now we don't have time to talk about love. So all we're going to do is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll remind you what love is. This is the character of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You can never go wrong memorizing these 15 phrases. This is love. Love is not a mushy, sentimental feeling. Love is treating someone else this way. Now, I'm going to have an outline for you. 
which has a short description for each one of these fruits. Love is unselfish care for another's godly benefit. Do you know what love in our society is? It's treating another with enough favors in order to get what you want from that person. And it feels good because the flesh loves that way. So the flesh gets excited. The flesh loves adultery, fornication, illegal relationships because the flesh will give enough in order to get back. And it feels good because the flesh feels good. But if you're mortifying the flesh and putting it to death, it doesn't feel good because the spirit is overwhelmingly grieved by such a thing. 1 Corinthians 13 Four through seven, love suffereth long. That's in our list, so we can pass right over it. And is kind. Just think about these 15 descriptions. This is God defining a word for us. This is love. You treat your spouse this way, you'll have a great marriage. Treat your children or your parents this way, you'll have a great marriage. You don't need anything else on marriage. The reason marriages aren't happy is because the two people aren't treating each other this way. This is enough. It covers it all. You say, but there's no sex in there. Well, listen, I can take about eight of these statements and they definitely include sex. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love being the unselfish care of another for their godly benefit. Love or charity, they're synonyms in our New Testament. Charity and love. Charity suffereth Long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Charity isn't going away. It's the measure by which God is going to measure us till he comes. If a person were to practice these things, this is the character of God. This is, we don't do this by nature. When they say, I fell in love with that person, nobody fell into this. You say, but when I was in that relationship with that person, I loved doing nice things for them. That is not love. You have been deceived. You have a deceitful heart. It is so easy for the rest of us to recognize that. All you're doing is things for them in order to get the flattery back of their affection. Sinners do it for each other all the time. Jesus said, that's why you don't go around blessing those that bless you. Bless those that curse you and show me some real love. Love your enemies, he said, and then you'll be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 48. That's love. Don't you let those feelings ever deceive you. They're lying to you, and they'll eat your soul alive. Love, the the character of God. How do we see God in a person's life? They love this way. When was the last time a 12-year-old boy treated his sister the way 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 describes? Your sister will love you forever if you were to treat her that way. Look at that. Look at that. What if, a, what if children treated each other this way? Wouldn't we really have brotherly kindness infecting this congregation? Yep. Amen. Let's go to the next one. Joy. What verse in the Bible only has two words? Oh, I got you. 
Everyone listening to this tape knows that it's Jesus wept, right? We're forgetting 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. There's two verses in the Bible with two words. Rejoice evermore. The second in the character of God is joy. God is infinitely, eternally happy. You say, there's sin in the world. How can He be happy? He allowed that sin for His own honor and glory and praise when He judges it. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased, and that included creating a race that was going to sin against Him. He is infinitely happy. Always. Without exception. Whenever you read in the Bible that it grieved God to His heart, He's trying to get down to our level of ignorance so that we can understand some aspect of His dealings with men. If most, some people, they're so simple. They've only got a few wires connected. And so when they get to reading about the flood, and they say that it grieved God to his heart, that he, that he had made man in the earth, and so he's going to take him off the earth. Then they get over to 1 Samuel, and it grieved God to his heart that he had made Saul king. They, they think that God made a mistake. All that is is expressions used for us to understand how he is now going to treat these people differently. God is infinitely happy. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. I've already quoted that verse. It's Psalm 76 and verse 10. And surely the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. God cuts off any wrath that wouldn't be to his pleasure and praise. God is joyful, therefore we should be joyful. Rejoice evermore. Joy is a heartfelt gladness from knowing the Lord. It doesn't have anything to do with circumstances. Paul was singing in an innermost prison. My favorite passage on joy, which I can't take you to, is Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, which gives six descriptions of total economic failure, and yet it says that the Lord is the joy of my heart, and I can dance because I know the Lord. That's joy. Whenever we let some little circumstance put a cloud over our lives, And, oh, I know, I've got a family here. Do you know how hard it is to preach to your family on a subject like this? You're all so blessed to be able to sit there in your smug, and I mean that kindly, I mean it kindly, because you don't have to preach to your family. They all know that I'm not a bundle of joy all the time. When are you not a bundle of joy? When you've slipped in your spiritual standing and relationship with God, Amen. and the flesh gets involved. You say, is it, is it really that cut and dried? Amen. It's that cut and dried. And all of us who are honest know that. Joyful, because the Lord is our God. Let not the mighty man glory in his strength, nor the rich in his riches, nor the wise in his wisdom. But let him glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me, that ought to give us joy forever and ever. Right. It will in heaven, it should here. Joy isn't a temperamental trait. Don't come to me and tell me that person is genetically joyful. No, they're not. They're just brain dead. That's why they're laughing all the time. Joy springs from one source. The Lord is my God. It doesn't spring from anything else. Listen, all of you would get joyful if you found a $10,000 check in your mailbox tomorrow. If you went out to the mailbox and said, I love you, here's a $10,000 check and it's an official bank check, you know there's no stop on it, you'd all get joyful in that sense of the word. That isn't joy. That's carnal happiness. 
That's the flesh automatically starting to add up a little shopping list of things to satisfy itself. Joy is knowing God. And the Spirit of God is in us to bear joy. It's not a Hollywood grin. That isn't evidence of joy. And it won't include jesting or foolishness or a whole lot of foolish laughing. Because joy is centered on the Lord. And with the Lord, circumstances and feelings aren't going to move us very much. May God have mercy upon us. Joy is based on our great hope and reward from knowing God. So that even when we're persecuted, we can count it as joy. We can fall into divers... The Bible's written in certain places. It almost sounds strange to our natural understanding. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Knowing this, the Lord's dealing with you to make you perfect. That's my paraphrase of what follows. That's James chapter 1, verse 2. But we've got to go to peace. Peace is sweet contentment. So you sure have changed. You're using the adjective sweet now. Peace is sweet contentment from trusting the Lord and it's shown by the absence of hostilities with others. Peace is sweet contentment because you know God. Circumstances don't alter peace because God never changes. There is perfect peace who put their trust in the Lord. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. The Holy Ghost is God. He's inside you and he wants to bear perfect peace. Just keep your mind stayed on Him. You can always be at peace. Fired? Some political hatchet job, you lose your job. You're at peace. There's a God in heaven. He feeds the lilies. He can take care of me. I mean, He clothes the lilies. He feeds the ravens. He can take care of me. Peace. Because we cast all of our cares upon Him, for we know He cares for us. We turn everything over to Him by prayer and supplication, and a peace that passes understanding takes over in our hearts as we put our trust in God. Here we are. We have a choice. The flesh, it wants to be discontent all the time because it wants to keep us on that treadmill pressing for something we'll never get so that we don't have time or affection for God. You have a choice. If you cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you, you can have peace. And we... There's within you the power to have peace. And I'm not talking about a vague force. I am talking about the presence of God and the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit that's, within, that's inside us and dwells with our new man. And if we will not grieve him and we will pray for him and we will choose peace over discontentment, he will grant us peace. If you're not feeling very peaceful, it's because you've gotten away from the Lord. Can it happen a couple times a day? Mm-hmm. Easily. It can happen a couple times in a prayer. Long-suffering. What does long-suffering mean? Long-suffering means you're willing to suffer for a long time. You children, you're willing to put up with what your brothers and sisters will do to you. Long-suffering is being able to put up with and bear what others do to you. It's a simple word. It's one of the simplest in here to understand. Long-suffering. Now remember... You can only practice the character of God in long-suffering when someone is doing something against you. Don't tell me about bearing the fruit of the Spirit when you're only talking about when people are treating you right. Long-suffering can only work when someone is hurting you and hurting you repeatedly and then hurting you some more. 
That's the only time He can ever show long-suffering. God shows it toward us all the time. It is in the character of God. Right. He bears with us His long-suffering. When God revealed Himself to Moses, what did Moses see? The backside of God. He saw that God was a long-suffering being. Are we long-suffering? And do you know what the Bible tells us? And I wish we could turn to numerous places, but you'll be able to do it yourself. It can be done with joyfulness. Long-suffering with joyfulness is found in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11. Now that just sounds very contrary to nature. Yes, it is. It's contrary to your old nature. It is God's nature. Right. Long-suffering with joyfulness. I love putting up with what they're doing to me to show the character of God. And we saw it in Philippians chapter 3. That's knowing the fellowship of His suffering. How about gentleness? Gentleness is tender kindness shown toward others. It's the opposite of selfish, harsh, or rude treatment. It isn't social etiquette. It may include it, but it isn't social etiquette. It's a gentle disposition reflecting the gentleness of Jesus Christ. It is precisely in the New Testament how a nurse treats her children. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, gentleness is defined as a nurse taking care of children. It is set against striving and brawling. Because a man of God is to be gentle. He's not supposed to be a brawler. He's not supposed to strive. Gentleness. Tender, easygoing treatment of others. Not harsh, not bold, gentle. You say, well, some people have a more gentle disposition than others. Oh, that's just external. No one is gentle by nature. Not in God's definition of gentleness. Because inside the heart of those quiet types, there's a heart that can think the same thoughts and worse many times than the ones who are a lot of blustery, blustering on the outside. That doesn't have anything to do with it. You're not born gentle in God's definition of the word. Being gentle is when someone is mistreating you and you're able to treat them like a nurse tends her child. Moses showed a lot of gentleness in carrying that nation through the wilderness for 40 years like a father carries a sucking child. How about goodness? We have one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in both lists, here in Ephesians chapter 5, and it's goodness. You know, goodness should be the simplest word for us to understand. It's being good, because God is good. Goodness is moral purity. You're good morally, and it's benevolence. It's wanting to do good to others. That's goodness. You're good, and you do good. God is good. We say that in its simplest of child's prayers. God is good. God is good with that sunshine. Though He sends it on all, He's showing His goodness to all. God is good. And He shows goodness to others. It's the opposite of being bad or evil. Children know what it means to be good. Whatever I was told to do, I do it. When I do something that I was told to do, I do it cheerfully. I do something nice for my sister. I do something nice for my parents. That's being good. That's the character of God. And you're doing it for the Lord's sake, not forgetting something from your parents. 
If you're doing nice things for your parents because your birthday is two weeks away, that isn't goodness. That's selfishness. Goodness and all of this is unselfish care for the welfare of another. Jesus gave himself for our welfare and we're to give ourselves for others. You should love the company of good men. Goodness is what the world hates today. If a person comes forward that's good, you want to see hatred? This world will unload. You know, they want to pass their hate legislation, which means you can't hate anything, but they hate good people. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3 said that's exactly what would come to pass. They'd be haters, despisers of those that are good. And it has come to pass. Good, always doing what is right and proper, always saying what is right and proper, and doing things for others that are right and proper. Good. That's a good person. When we say those words, we ought to mean that by the definition of God's word. They truly have the welfare of others as their priority, and they're doing it for the Lord's sake. Faith. Faith is confidence that God keeps his promises. That's the character of God that ought to be in us. It was in the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted God that he would keep his promises. And so we should have that faith also. Circumstances should not move us because God is still on his throne. Because the circumstances come your way. Remember this. When a circumstance comes your way, it is not to decrease your faith by by believing that God is no longer with you. It's to increase your faith. Because he's going to give you some adversity to test your faith so that your faith can grow. Your faith can't grow when things are going your way. Your faith can't grow in the middle of prosperity. Your faith has to grow in trouble. When you're feeling stripped of all supports and you have to cast yourselves upon the Lord himself. Faith is trust in God keeping his promises. And it will always have works to back it up. It won't be someone saying, I believe. It will be someone showing us their belief in hard times. Meekness is in verse 23 of Galatians chapter 5. Meekness is avoiding personal glory or esteem. Meekness is not wanting to be put up by others. It's different from humility. It's different from thinking lowly or poorly of yourself, meekness is avoiding any public position or being lifted up by others. When we look at Moses, and we go back and look at the life of Moses and read his statements, he was described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. And we know the meekness of Moses by looking at the statements where he never wanted the job. There's lots of... Whenever you see a person that wants the limelight, that wants to be the center of attention that wants to be the talker in a group of people, you've found a person that has no meekness. It's the opposite of that. Moses didn't like his job. He did it because the Lord made him do it. And he did it well. But he did not want that position of leadership. He was very meek. Jesus Christ was very meek. Jesus Christ was never a self-promoter. When he would heal, he would send men away saying, Tell no one that I did this. He did not lift up his voice in the street. He did not want promotion. Go go watch the movements of Jesus Christ, avoiding his own family when they were wanting to put him up. Go read the book of John when his family wanted him to come to the Passover with them so that they could present him 
to the city of Jerusalem. He wouldn't go with them. He didn't want such a position because he was meek. He isn't meek anymore. He's on his white horse, and you know where he wants to ride? He doesn't want to ride at the back of the army. He wants to ride at the front because he's king of kings and lord of lords. But in his humiliation, as a man, he showed us the perfect example of meekness. Now he's God, glorified humanity in heaven, and he's exalted as king over all. Meekness is not wanting to be the center of attention. Meekness is when there's a, a little celebration at your house and it's one of your brother's or sister's birthday. All you can think about is making them the center of attention. All parents know that when it's the birthday of one child, all the rest do their best to get as much of the attention as they can. But meekness is trying to make that other person get all the attention. Meekness is putting yourself down because you don't like to be the center and putting the other person up. We come to the word temperance. It's the last word in the Galatians 5 passage. Temperance is self-discipline of natural passions. Temperance is the ability to rule your spirit and to rule your body and to rule your tongue and to rule yourself. Temperance is not the abstinence from alcohol. That's what happens when you let women get together with Presbyterian preachers. You get misdefined words. Billy Sunday and a bunch of women in the late 1800s defined temperance as total abstinence from alcohol, and that was called the temperance movement, and so now you don't even know what the word temperance means. So let's let the Bible define it for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, Paul said, A man that is striving for an Olympic medal or a crown, a crown in an athletic endeavor, is temperate in all things. Now, does anyone need help in understanding what the word temperate means now? A man that's going for to win an athletic event is temperate in all things. He is self-disciplined in all things. He knows that he needs a certain amount of sleep, so he goes to bed on time. He knows that he can't eat a particular thing because it will hinder his performance, so he doesn't eat it. He knows that he must train so he can get up before the sun gets up to go out and exercise while everyone else is in bed. That's being temperate. The ability to rule your passions and bodily desires. And temperance should be evident in our lives. It doesn't have anything to do with abstinence. It has to do with self-denial and self-discipline. It's what the Bible calls moderation. Let your moderation be known unto all men. That means disciplining yourself instead of going to excess in any bodily appetite or passion. Now, if we go to Ephesians chapter 5... We have a couple more mentioned there in verse 9. These are the two ver- these are the verses. They're actually three verses that we've memorized a few weeks ago as a church. We've covered love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And now there's two new ones here in Ephesians 5:9, righteousness and truth. Righteousness is keeping all of God's commandments. Righteousness is doing right. Righteousness is doing what God has said. Without compromise, it always wants to say the right thing, think the right thing, and do the right thing. That's righteousness. As defined by God, Jesus Christ had it. He loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And it's what we're to have. Always wanting to keep all of God's commandments without compromise. The last one is truth. 
truth is love of honesty and hatred of hypocrisy and error and compromise. It'll never mislead anyone. It doesn't want to exaggerate. Truth wants to be as honest as it can be. There's verses in the Bible that tell us in the New Testament to provide things honest in the sight of all men so that it's visibly demonstrated that we are honest people. We should always provide for things honest before God and men. Truth is a love of honesty and a hatred of hypocrisy and error. Truth hates lies. Truth is the opposite of a lie. A person with the character of God should never lie. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't allow lying. It always tells the truth. We don't even want to exaggerate. Oh, isn't that a temptation when we speak to press the facts a little bit, to embellish the story, to make our point a little bit stronger by not really lying, but just stretching the truth. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't stretch truth. The Holy Spirit contends for truth and stands for it, but doesn't stretch it, and we don't compromise it. You know, this last measure of the fruit of the Spirit is one that is despised today by those who claim to have the Spirit. They don't care about truth. They want their gifts, and they want their miracles, and they want their feelings, and they want their music. But you press them about truth, and they don't care. And so it is stuck in this list, and it's last for us to consider it soberly that truth is important, and it's part of the ministry of the Spirit of God. Truth in a life, truth in a church, is showing the character of the Spirit of God. Always wanting the truth. Always wanting to do things honest. Rejoicing in truth, not rejoicing in iniquity, making no pretenses, submitting to God's truth, and not putting up with those who have no truth. Those who don't want to stand for truth, a man who has the character of the Spirit of God has no use for him. You look into 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 3, men who don't have the truth, it doesn't say labor with them. It says, from such withdraw thyself because the spirit of god is the spirit of truth and he go- he guided the apostles into all truth and that should be the character of the righteous what is the fruit of the spirit the fruit of the spirit is what is going to be displayed in our lives if we're walking after the spirit and we have a choice God has given us two natures now. We won't, we'll, soon, we won't have two. We'll have one. And it's a blessed day that's coming. We have two natures. And we're to put to death our old nature. And we're to feed this new nature. My brethren, if you will pray for the Holy Spirit, God will give you the Holy Spirit. If you will confess your sins and forsake them, sin grieves and quenches the Spirit of God. When you know, as you're going through a day, I don't feel very peaceful. I don't feel very joyful. I don't sense joy. I don't sense peace. I'm snapping at people. I'm not long-suffering. Something has happened. This is not a mysterious phenomenon. There's something called sin that has entered your life and separated between you and God and the Holy Spirit is grieved or quenched and you don't have the power to live that victorious life. And when we feel that, when we know that, we should stop whatever we're doing. I don't care if you're at work. You can take the time. It only takes moments. 
to confess whatever you've done wrong and go back to the Lord and ask for His Spirit again to restore love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and the rest of it. Constantly wanting to walk with the Spirit. I want to tell you something. When you have those tense moments and you know that there's not a whole lot of love exuding from your spirit, nor joy, nor peace, and you recognize it and you think about it, I want to tell you something. A voice behind thee is saying, this is not the way. You've gone off to the right hand. Back over here is the way. Walk ye in it. Do you know what you should do with that voice? Heed it diligently. And that voice will be stronger, and it will be there to guide you into the fruit of the Spirit, to show the character of God in our lives. If we are not as a church showing the character of God in our lives, our religion is a sham, and we have no hope of eternal life. But brethren, this is not an impossible task for us, because that Spirit also gives us the desire for these things. And the more you do them, the more you want to do them, and the more able you are to do them. May God bless us to set our affection to seek Christ and things above and to show the character of God in our lives. And may we love one another enough that when we see, when we see performance and actions in the lives of those around us, we will gently and kindly, with the meekness of Jesus Christ, warn, correct, and exhort each other back into that way Amen. as a church we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. May God be praised.